0: Honey beep for that, beef for the honey beep for that, be for the honey beep for that, beef for the honey beep for that. Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. I'm Jennifer Jahan with the Hive Poetry Collective. For today's Poetry Hour, we're going to witness some extraordinary poems, and our guest, who I'll introduce in a moment, asked me to set the tone for our hour with the following poem from his anthology, Al-Mutanabi Street Starts Here. This is excerpt from Five Hymns to Pain, by Nazik al-Malaika. It gives our nights sorrow and pain. It fills our eyes with sleeplessness. We found it on our way one rainy morning and gave it, out of love, a stroke of pity and a little corner in our throbbing heart. It never left or vanished from our way, stalking us to the corners of the world. If only we gave it no drop to drink that sad morning. It gives our night sorrow and pain. It fills our eyes with sleeplessness. How do we forget pain? How do we forget pain? Who will light for us the night of its memory, we shall eat it, we shall drink it, we shall pursue it with songs, and if we sleep, its shape will be the last thing we see, and in the morning, its face will be the first thing we discern, and we shall bear it with us, whatever our desires and wounds take us. We shall allow it to raise walls between our longing and the moon, our anguish and the cooling stream, our eyes and our sight. Translated from Arabic by Hussein Hadawi. And... Once again, this is the Hive Poetry Collective. I'm the host for this hour, Jennifer Jahan, on KSQD 90.7 FM Santa Cruz. And you can find Hive Poetry Collective on our website, hivepoetry.org. And you can check our events page for our readings every other month at Bookshop Santa Cruz or on Facebook and on Twitter. And tune into to our radio hour every Sunday at 8 Tonight I'm here with San Francisco bookseller, international cultural curator and poet extraordinaire Beau Sole, someone I'm also proud to call collaborator and friend. Beau Soleil is a poet and activist based in San Francisco. He is the founder of Shadow and Light, which honors Iraqi academics who were targeted and assassinated between 2003 and 2012. Shadow and Light is part of a larger book arts project. Al-Mutanabi Street starts here, founded in 2007 by Soleh as a response to the March 5th, 2007 car bombing of Al-Mutanabi Street, the street of the booksellers in Baghdad. He is the author of 15 books of poetry. His most recent book is Another Way Home, Blue Light Press, 2022, and forthcoming are two chapbooks, The Killing of George Floyd, Intermittent Press, 2023, and Poems for Ukraine, Barley Books, UK, 2023.
1: Welcome, Beau. Thank you, Janitha. (laughs)
0: The poem you asked me to recite from the anthology, Amutanabi Street Starts Here. Can you tell us about that project and how it became an anthology, as well as a global event that's now continued for over 15 years?
1: Yes. Um, I like to say that uh, I became an organizer the way many people become an organizer. First, you wait for someone else to do it. And then, when no one does it, you step in. Uh, in on March fifth, two thousand and seven, I picked up the New York Times, which at that point had a succession of stories, day after day, about uh, people dying in Iraq, uh, people being shot, bombs going off, and the just the chaos in, um, in occupied Baghdad as well as the rest of the country. But for the longest time, myself and so many millions of people around the world who marched against that invasion, for so long the Iraqi people themselves were kept at a distance from me. They were exactly what we call the other and didn't really have anything to do with my life directly. And it frustrated me, but that's exactly how governments work. They want to distance you from the people that they are oppressing, invading. And in terms of this colonial war, it was useful to make Americans either see Iraqis as perpetrators of violence or victims of violence, but not see them as people. And when the bombing was reported in the New York Times on March 5th, I knew immediately that as a bookseller, that would be my street. That would be the street that my bookshop would be on. And as a poet, that would be my literary community. So the distance between myself and the Iraqi people simply dropped away. And I knew that there had to be a response to this bombing, that we had to, among other things, not only show people in the West that we stood in solidarity with cultural workers in Iraq who had suffered from this attack, um, but that, the Iraqi people could see us, and in turn, let them know that we saw them. So I thought for sure that someone would organize a reading in San Francisco where I live in response to this bombing. But a week went by, 10 days went by, and I could see it, this event, just sinking into the rabbit hole of history. And I decided I had to do something about it. So I began to call people that I knew, both print letterpress printers, as well as poets and writers, and began to organize a reading uh, at the San Francisco Library, at the main library, which we held in August of 2007. And uh, it was there that I first met Um, Dima Shihabi, who became the co-editor of the anthology later on, and she was a contributing editor to the anthology. And I met Sanan Antoun, the Iraqi poet, um, who simply thanked us for putting this event on and for seeing them. Um, And I've had that expression used a number of times when I've met Iraqis over the years, the simple phrase "Thank you for seeing us." Um, one thing that struck me at the time, you know, with the help of a letterpress printer in uh, out of um, Palo Alto, a woman named Kathleen Walkup, we issued a call for letterpress printers. So letterpress printers print a broadside, a poem. On a broadside, and uh, other people who were helping me created a uh, a web page that held Iraqi poets on it. So we, by the time of the reading, we had about forty-three broadsides. I always think of letterpress printers as first responders. Historically, it's been letterpress printers that either responded to a nation's grief or to a nation's aspirations going back all the way to the revolution. So it was an opportunity for them to step forward and use uh, their print shops again in that way. I mean, we know that they all did it during the 60s and the 70s, um, but it was heartening to see how many people stepped forward. We ended up with about 130 letterpress printers from all different countries um, contributing work to the project. But one thing I realized after we had an exhibit and we had the reading was that I didn't want it to stop. I felt like one thing governments are always perfectly fine with is go ahead and have your demonstration as long as at the end of the demonstration, everyone goes home. I wanted a project that didn't go home. And so I decided to continue. And I thought one way to do that, one way to keep Iraq in the forefront of people's consciousness, was to add other art forms besides letterpress to the project. And so working with a um, a professor at uh, UWE in the UK in Bristol, Sarah Bodman, I issued a call uh, for artist books reacting to the, in response to the bombing of um, Alma nabi Street. And we collected more than 260 artist books. Uh, and after that, we did a print project called Absence and Presence and added another 150 prints to the project. Um, We now have had more than 500 writers and artists from 20 different countries contribute work to this project uh, since it began in 2007. We've exhibited uh, in Baghdad, in Cairo, in Venice, Italy, in Sweden, throughout the UK, uh, in Canada, all through the United States at various universities. The anthology, which was published in 2012 by PM Press was really uh, possible because all through this project, I have tried to gather good people to work with. And I gathered a number of really great contributing editors uh, to put together this manuscript. I began to feel that where the whole idea of Almutunabi Street, the idea of this bombing, the idea of attacking a cultural center, the idea of trying to erase culture was something that everyone could see from their own locale. Someone that, uh, someone could stand in solidarity with this idea any place around the globe. So I felt it was important to have a document, a book of sorts. Uh, An Iraqi filmmaker who's become a friend, Mason Patrashi, who's based in London, once said about our project that it is the making in the face of the unmaking. So that is what uh, I felt we needed to do with the, uh, with the anthology. And I began to feel that wherever someone picked up a book to read or where someone sat down and began to write towards the truth, It was there that Al-Mutanabi Street starts. So that right now I feel Al-Mutanabi Street starts with the women in Tehran who are demonstrating. It starts with the women in Kabul who cannot teach anymore, who cannot be visible in public. It starts anywhere where any tyrant any oppressive regime uh, tries to control culture in all of its manifestations and promotes equality against this inequality that continues to oppress so many people. And that's why this project is a global project. And that's why from the very beginning, I had the idea that every March 5th, anywhere around the world, people should organize a reading for al Street because al Mutanabe Street starts there, right there with them wherever they are. So that's the long <laughs> version.
0: <laughs> oh my goodness. Bo, you have to be one of the most quotable people I know in terms of everything you say, I want to write down and and put on a bumper sticker or (laughs) or something, because that was so rich and so powerful. And I'm just overcome with gratitude right now that you began, you seeded this work and that you have sustained it for over 15 years now. And, um, so much to respond to. But I want to uh, begin by saying that, yes, I was really honored to meet you. And, and I think start maybe 2019, I, I jumped in. So about 12 years into the project, I uh, wrote and then uh, at Bookshop Santa Cruz was able to participate there where you would brought together local poets and, and David Sullivan, my colleague, had was able to zoom in Iraqi poets as well. And I was so honored as well that in 2020, March the 4th, and I don't know, I like March 4th because it's such an imperative to march forth into the world. And so I tend to do it the day before so as not to compete with March 5th events that are also happening um, more of them are happening, I think, on March 5th. So I had this March 4th, 2020 event at Cabrillo College bringing together community college students where the students themselves created and curated the event. Mm -hmm. So it was student driven. I thought that was really important.
1: Yeah, that's what we want, really. We we want an organic reading like that.
0: Yes. And I'll say more about Shadow and Light a bit later, or ask you to, because I think for that project as well, having students drive it was very meaningful. But what became especially resonant is that I scheduled this for March 4th, 2020, when it was questionable whether we would keep our doors open. And it was a rather large gathering that day with students and off-campus visitors and readers. And the next week we went into lockdown. Nice. So it was the last event that Salaam Initiative, this student-driven group we'd created in response to the Muslim travel ban and the ways that students of Middle Eastern and Muslim descent were feeling and being targeted on campus and, and in our you know, local area, as well as state and, and nation. So Salam Initiative put on this event, and that was the last event on campus that I participated in before the pandemic. So yes, I'm very honored, excited to be a part of this. And once again, we're listening to Bobo Soleil on the Hive Poetry Collective's poetry show. I'm Jennifer Jahan, your host. We're on KSQD 90.7 FM, Central Cruise. And I just want to say that you had said you wanted a project or protest that didn't go home. That is so beautiful and speaks so much to how time and place, keeping it going through time and across space is such an important piece of this project, its vastness, its scope. But at the same time, something else you said about the making in the face of the unmaking, and even more so this bridging of distance. You talked about how you felt this real distance that gets created between the American public and the global lives that our living impacts through our American ways of being and our government's choices. And so that distance being bridged through art, through poetry, becomes really clear just hearing you speak and through all the projects you've participated in. And something that was coming up for me as I was reading that poem you asked me to read, excerpts from Five Hymns to Pain, and is indeed true of your poems as they come to me, is the sense of intimacy, that connection between survivor and witness, lends itself to this idea I've heard you speak about before, art for the sake of ideas where art is not simply for art's sake, but that it's there to really um, humble itself to the idea that it's trying to reveal. And I wonder if you can just say more about that and perhaps correct me if I'm quoting you incorrectly. Yeah, art but, in, the serv- in the service, art in the service of ideas. Yes. Exactly.
1: Speak more it's, to that. It's a um, struggle that I've often had with curators where they do not wanna put up the artist statement that goes along with the art. But for me, it is reading the statements of the artists and how they struggle to come up with a authentic and uh, to use your phrase, an intimate image uh, that is so interesting, that is so moving. So I've always insisted that the artist statements go up with the art that the work that we produce is not simply an art exhibit. it is art in the service of ideas and you need that statement uh, right there. I wanted to to add a coda to what I said about the um, project and that is what the project is not. So number one, the project does not attempt or, Um, seek to speak for the Iraqi people. They have their own eloquent voice. We are in the West. We want them to see that we stand in solidarity with them. I always say that our project is one of witness, memory, and solidarity. Our project also is not a healing project because people are desperate to heal, partly to feel better and also to move on. And that goes back to the idea of a project that would not go away, a project that continued to come back at you, to make you think. And that's what this project is. That's one of its its greater aims is to make people think. Um, I always say that we are not a healing project because to heal, the first thing is to identify the wounds. And the wounds that we have left on the body of Iraq, both physically and metaphorically, will be coming to the surface for generations to come. I've often said that if this were a project where Uh, we wanted to put a chocolate chip cookie into the hands of every child in Baghdad, we would have high school classes across the country here baking cookies into the night. And why is that? Because with that one symbolic action, that connection to those children would end. And that's not what this project is about. I mean, this project, continues because Iraq continues. It continues because of all that the Iraqi people have endured, not just in the illegal and immoral invasion of Iraq, which I like to say is equal to the illegal and immoral invasion of Ukraine, with the same war criminals still walking around, Uh, but it's important for us to let the Iraqi people know that we stand with them um, and to let people here in the West reflect on the things that have happened to Iraq, going all the way back to sanctions and the Gulf War, and before that, the war with Iran as well. I mean, more than 40 years of that. Yes. So, yes, yeah.
0: yes. yes.
1: That, We're, not, yeah. Yeah. We're not a happiness project. Although,
0: no.
1: you know, we, we are one of great solidarity, and I've met so many great people through this project. And um, meeting people like yourself and other people um, are really the strength that I draw from to continue the project from year to year. So,
0: yes, I so appreciate your insights that this is not about satisfying that urge to heal and move on and that this is more a project to reveal than to heal, if you will. And it was occurring to me, too, especially with that artist statement, the importance of the artist statement, which I wondered about initially because I, sorry, I'm on Zoom and working with these little bits and bobs. But yes, I remember being startled by the emphasis you had on the artist statement, because I felt initially that I should be more self-effacing and, and that it was taking uh, the spotlight, if you will, away from the the Iraqi uh, person. Uh, and we'll talk about Shadow and Light in a moment about... Um, How artist statements worked with photography and and photojournalism with that project. But this idea that the witness is really the focus here. We're going to focus on what it is to live the complexity of witness where one is complicit, there are um, acknowledgments of guilt, of frustration at the stasis, at the continuation of oppressions that we participate in and benefit from passively and yet choicefully at times. And so all of that seems to be there in that witness position that you really create space for when the witness is often left invisible or or rendered invisible for the sake of of the art piece. And I, I go back to this idea of intimacy between the survivor and the witness, the survivor and and the person bearing witness. And I had asked you to send me some poems for this hour. And the first two that you sent me were letters to Iraq. And of course, letters are in fact, a very intimate rhetorical tool, right? Letters have a very purposeful, intentional sender and receiver. Right. And so I think that it's interesting that you choose to write these letters. And the first one is another intimate poem, similar to Malaika. You address it to a specific audience and allow the reader or listener to eavesdrop on a conversation. And I really feel that sense of eavesdropping in your letter to Iraq, especially the first one. And it's uh, you say the following about it. This is letter to Iraq. November 10th, 2019. You say this was written during the demonstration for jobs, equality, human rights, and an end to government corruption in Iraq in 2019, which was an Arab spring moment for the country that ended with the death of about 600 peaceful protesters over a six-month period, and the wounding of about 18,000 demonstrators by government security forces and state-backed militias. So, would you please read for us Letter to Iraq 111019?
1: Letter to Iraq 11102019. One does not go into the street to die. One wants to be part of a public movement that forces those in power to come to their senses or leave. One wants change, not the promise of change, not a panel to study change, not a worthless piece of paper pressed into one's hand. One goes into the street to truly live with dignity, not to die, but instead to fully taste each bitter sweet moment of freedom that rushes towards you like a bullet
0: wow to fully taste each bitter sweet moment of freedom that rushes towards you like a bullet we we have to talk about that more we're here with bobo Beau sole on the hive poetry hour Uh, KSQD 90.7 FM. This is Jennifer Jahan, and I'm speaking with Bobo Soleil and this powerful, powerful poem. Can you say more about freedom that rushes toward you like a bullet?
1: I think that what I'm trying to get at there is the the people who demonstrated uh, during those months, in uh, the major cities of of Iraq, Um, they were from the full strata of the population from professionals to students, to workers, all forming this bond of of unity, trying to uh, stabilize their own country. And I don't think anyone, As I say in the poem, no one chooses to demonstrate uh, and die on the street. One feels a dignity in in marching with others, trying to bring some change uh, into focus. So, So But there is no one who is in the street in those demonstrations, nor in demonstrations here, um, that doesn't know that things can turn suddenly deadly at the same time. So there is that mixture of freedom that is a companion to that is the um, possibility of death, which comes rushing toward you. They're both rushing towards you.
0: Yes, and you know something, and I'll talk a little bit about the way your poems appear, which which our listeners can't see. But one choice that stood out to me as I saw and read that last stanza is how that bittersweet moment of freedom. You have a slash mark between bitter and sweet, so it's either or. It's not bittersweet. It's bitter slash sweet. And that's the thing about these risks. When you're talking about freedom rushing towards you like a bullet, you're going to live or you're going to die, right? It's Or you're going to be um, injured or you're going to escape that brush with death. And so it's very uh, black or white, if you will. It's very live or die. It's bitter or it's sweet. And I think for those of us with the privilege of nuance in our protesting, we can think about bittersweet complexities of experience, but for those rushing toward that bullet, that bullet will hit them or it won't. And that for me is what resides in that slash mark between bitter and sweet. Hmm. So,
1: I think the poem also speaks to the idea of how uh, oppressive governments can push aside uh, legitimate claims for a change in society by forming a panel, studying things, letting time go by. The thing about um, protest movements, one one of the uh, groups of protesters that I've always admired were the Mothers in the Plaza, in Argentina who came with the pictures and names of their children who had been disappeared during the military junta years. And they didn't just come once. They came every single week for years and years. They simply did not stop. And I took strength from that kind of demonstration. And those are the same kind of things that happened in Iraq, I mean, people were, all those 600 people weren't killed on the same day. They were killed day after day in different places, in twos and threes, and people were snatched off the street by security forces, and in some cases, tortured, Uh, but they kept coming back. So what was it that drove them to come back unarmed day after day after day i mean that is one of the things that um as a poet i can't help but be so impressed by the kind of there's this, just this purity uh, it's it's not even a conscious purity it's unconscious it's there in the psyche that one will risk everything for change So, the poem tries to get at something like that. The way I, the way I write poems is long and narrow, and um, I think of them as being close to the bone in that way, Mm. that they display a physical physical aspect of me trying to get as close to that. Intimacy, if I can use your word again, and um, and truth as I possibly can. So, yes, yeah,
0: yes, you you do that. I I love that you you've now twice called intimacy my word. Let's just make it my word. I, I like that. <laughs> my word, intimacy is Jennifer Jahan's word. That's that's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think of your poems, Bo, which I've been blessed by receiving over email you'll send them out and I'm one of your recipients and I think of them as long and lean yeah. and that is indeed how you intend them they, they, they definitely or have that pared down immediacy as well as intimacy and to go back to this intimacy idea that I'm caught up with right now I notice in the crafting of this poem and the address you say one does and does not and you use one rather than you. And I wonder if you're trying to create a broader humanity and relatability to that particular experience where you're seeing this as a sane person's response to crisis where you see how one, anyone might respond this way as opposed to making it specifically about you or they. Is there something intentional going on with that? Yes,
1: very, very intentional. And, and you're right, I mean, you put your finger on it. Um, that's what I wanted. I wanted it to speak not just to the particular, but to the universal, to the uh, much broader aspect of what I'm trying to get at there.
0: Well, that is exciting because I then looked at your next letter to Iraq written three days later. Uh, a letter to Iraq, 11, 13, 19. And you make a different set of choices there. and I wonder if you can read that one and then we'll talk about it.
1: Letter to Iraq, 11-13-2019. How much of your sky is left to pull down? How much light does each falling body take with it as it hits the ground? You fold your reading glasses and put them in your pocket. You cover your nose and mouth with a handkerchief and walk out into the street. Someone recognizes you from the university and waves. She loves, believes in poetry as much as you do. And together you walk towards where? There is the most noise and smoke for it is there that liberty is being born. And you both want to see it no matter what happens. You both want to be part of that brutal, miraculous joy at its birth.
0: Yes. I feel like there should always be this pause at the end of your poems because, ah, there's so much to take in there. Okay, so keeping on theme with what I was talking about before or on topic of that, who are you addressing in this poem? Who is folding their reading glasses and venturing out? Tell me about the speaker and listener here.
1: Well, I had, like so many here have been following these demonstrations. And as as a poet, I'm highly attuned both to language but also visuals. So I began to see photographs of people in the street wearing a handkerchief against uh, tear gas uh, that was being shot at them. And I, just pushed myself into that moment. Um, I didn't want to there, you know, when you're writing poems like this, there's always this line that you don't want to cross. You don't, you don't want to begin to speak the emotions of that person, but you want to try and get as close to it as possible. And you want to be able to find some place um, where you can bring understanding uh, to an event that you're addressing. So I, in my own mind's eye, I saw this, uh, this young man step out into the street and then be recognized by someone from the university. And that together, that they would walk together, the symbolic thing of men and women, both walking together in these demonstrations, uh, I feel is a very powerful metaphor for change as well. Uh, So I I saw them, I saw saw and felt a kind of uh, impatience uh, for change. And I felt that most probably they would walk towards, not where it was the quietest, but where it was the noisiest. And I thought, well, why are they walking there, you know? And I thought, because that is where Liberty is being born. That is where the, it is that miraculous place of, um, of birth of Liberty, And so that's what I felt like was propelling the poem and propelling my my response to what was going on as well.
0: That is so thoughtful. And I was thinking about, you know, that there's that sort of underbelly of the issue of cultural appropriation. And obviously, this is something that you've thought about uh, just from the way that you speak about your subject matter and the respect and care you're taking as you enter into that subject. And it occurs to me that empathy is very much a way to keep oneself in check, hold oneself in check as one wants to avoid cultural appropriation, where you're not representing something. You're not representing it for a commercial or consumer audience. You're reaching in empathically and speaking to those who are experiencing it, saying, as you had said earlier, we see you. We, right. I, I'm imagining, I'm entering into this imaginative space, not to claim it or appropriate it, but to simply to witness. assure you that you're not alone uh, in in the care, perhaps, to to, um, to express a kind of care I mean, you say this all very powerfully in your project. And I realize that with the time we have left, we have to talk about shadow and light because <laughs> you do that, that project, which brings in image, which, as you said, you're very captured as much by the visual aspect of an experience. So, shadow and light brings in the visual. But again, you focus on the act of witness with a humility that acknowledges that we're not able to speak for. And yet, because the focus is on dead academics, those who have been whose lives have been taken tragically and, and in a tortured way, perhaps the only voice they get is this one of witness. So that is such a powerful project. It is part of the larger Al-Mutanabi Street Starts Here project. Can you speak to us a little bit about Shadow and Light?
1: Well, uh, Shadow and Light began when I stumbled onto a list that had been compiled by a Spanish NGO of Iraqi academics who had been targeted and and assassinated. Uh, It has, the list had 324 names on it with a fragmentary entry on the details of how they were assassinated. Sometimes they didn't even have the name of the academic uh, or the gender of the academic. They had the university where they taught and like in so many universities, uh, this list has countless numbers of um, you know, not just professors, but also lecturers as well. I I was stunned by this list. And although there were, uh, I've read reports that as many as 700 Iraqi academics were assassinated. And there are myriad reasons for these assassinations. I mean, including revenge and kidnappings, but the broad scope of them over so many years uh, showed me that they were a way for groups to control uh, the infrastructure, one part of the infrastructure of a country. And one way to gain power is to destabilize that infrastructure. And certainly we did that, in Iraq. People sometimes ask me, well, did the Americans, do you think the Americans bombed al Mutanabi Street? And I always say, I have no idea, but one thing I know is that they set the table for that bombing. And they set the table for these assassinations as well. Um, If you want to control a, a population, one place, to start, one powerful place is to control what is being taught and those who are teaching it. So you gain control of the curriculum, you either kill those who are teaching it, but you also give warning to everyone else. You only have to kill one person in a department for everyone in that department to know uh, that what they are teaching, what they are saying in a classroom is being monitored, is being watched. And someone may choose at some point, if you don't self-censorship what you are teaching, someone may move to eliminate you. One of the astounding things about the list of 324 academics is the wide span of what they were teaching social sciences, beekeeping, agronomy, literature, poetry, calligraphy. It just moved like a ripple across some campuses. Some academics were killed in the parking lot of the university, some at the door to their home, some inside their house some traveling with other colleagues who then were killed also. Uh, it's, it's numbing. And I felt that we what we had to do was to try and find common ground with these people. Again, I didn't wanna speak for them, but what I wanted to show that we really are each other, that There was a way to find this common ground with everyone who joined Shadow and Light. And so I asked each person to uh, try to write their way closer to the person that they were honoring. Each person that joins the project chooses someone from that list. And in terms of it being a photography project, the photograph is only there to hold you so that you will read this artist statement uh, and establish this sense of connection. Uh, I've asked people in their photographs not to have a human uh, person in the photograph, not to have an animal. I asked that the photograph show a kind of absence, a kind of emptiness uh, and an emptiness in the everyday. Uh, I thought was really important. And we're now at about 57 uh, contributors, with contributors um, ranging from Jordan to Egypt, um, all through the United States and into Canada as as well. We have people who are from Iran in the project. It's become a powerful and reflective moment at these exhibits when people stand there and begin to read these statements. Um, I feel that shadow and light affects someone, if not at the moment, and I've been told about how much silence suddenly descends on the gallery when people are standing there and reading these statements. But I feel some of the most effective part of it is uh, really happens days later when what you have seen and read begins to turn over and over in your mind. And that's where I think the work of the project. I've been asked, what is the goal of shadow and light? Or uh, one time I had an a interview, I was going to have an interview with the BBC. And before you get that interview with their radio side, uh, you have a pre-interview. And so in the pre-interview over the telephone, we talked about the project. And then the woman asked me, the producer asked me, well, what is your goal? And I said, well, we have no goal. If you want to call it a goal, it's that the project continue. And she said, Oh, yes, I understand. And we kept talking. And then 10 minutes later, she said to me, So if you had to name a goal. Oh, <laughs> and I said, There isn't a goal. Well, needless to say, I never got that interview with the BBC. I flunked the pre interview. Um, oh, And that is part of what Shadow and Light is about. There is no goal for Shadow and Light. There is this moment of reflection that we hope is repeated from campus to campus where it is shown. And what people do with that reflection is part of who they are and who they hope to be. And Shadow and Light is like a a place to step into. Uh, so, that what it produces may not even have anything to do with what happened in Iraq and maybe social change in a completely different way. But I like to think that uh, this exhibit has its own inspira- inspirational moments in that sense for other people. Wow,
0: yes. I <laughs> so agree with you in terms of that experience as being part of the shadow and light photo project I had chosen I was moved by all of these academics as they came to us on this list from the website of the Spanish NGO and the one that I selected to respond to was someone who had been kidnapped on his way to campus and the campus was in between sessions and he had been kidnapped on his way there and taken and murdered and was not found for days and then his family had to pay to have his um, body returned to them so that really struck me and what I did was I visited my own camp college campus between sessions to enter into that liminal time and space as well and um ended up with a response about the emptiness of a a forsaken campus and and that sense of emptiness and imagining this building and the structure without the people it's intended for there. And and that really bubbled up for me. And when you talk about the silence that descends and that experience of listening to the artists stand and read their statements, I had the pleasure of doing that at the Aryan Press Reading in San Francisco last year and I remember just the power of that moment of being able to stand there and and state and bear witness and how afterwards because my photo and statement had been on display I saw people going up to my photo and taking photographs of my photo Hmm. and I thought well that's so interesting because there's nothing all that I think outstanding about my photo. I'm not a photographer by any means, but they were taking photos. They were trying to capture that moment. I think for what you're talking about, for that ability to revisit it a few days later and remember and reflect on, on that experience. And I wonder, our time has just flown by. I wonder if you could read your poem regarding the list of 324 Iraqi academics assassinated that you created Sure. As an apt
1: response, yeah. Regarding the list of 324 Iraqi academics assassinated 2003 to 2012. This shadowed morning you write thought and read the garden. You readjust the graded papers in your briefcase and wait for the enemies of knowledge to arrive. Teaching is like watering a garden, you think. Everything doesn't grow at once, but every growing thing needs water. Someone will find your body and next to it, the book that holds the poems that they came to kill you for writing, but if you are still alive in an hour, you will drive to the university and teach your first class.
0: Yes, again, that possibility of everything being snuffed out in just that moment, but our intention to continue the work Continues. That's powerful. Just, I wish our listeners could see this on the page because when you read, you readjust the graded papers. It also, to me, looked at, I I saw it as you read just. Uh You read just the graded papers. It's of course readjust. That is so powerful. And again, we see this theme of continuing in the work continuing in this what should be as accessible as breathing being made a commodity a rarity a risk and the braveness of the people to carry on knowing that they are running towards freedom like a bullet right Right. i I'm so loath to say that we are at the end of our hour and that you had sent me these poems from the book On Mutunabi Street Starts Here, Poets and Writers Respond to the March 5th, 2007 bombing of Baghdad Street of Booksellers. And this anthology is available in bookstores. I really hope people will read it, purchase it and read it because the poems of witness within, there's also prose survivor accounts, witness accounts. Once again, this is Bobo Soleil. I'm Jennifer Jahan of the Hive Poetry Collective. You're listening to KSQD Santa Cruz, 90.7 FM. Please check out the Hive Poetry Collective on hivepoetry.org. Check our events page for upcoming readings. Every other month, we have poets come and read. Uh, Perhaps we'll have Bo come in and read uh, one of these months. We have. Uh, we're on Facebook. We're on Twitter, and we have podcasts where you can re-listen to our radio show, which is also eight p.m. on Sundays. Thank you, Bo, and may your witness continue.
1: Thank you, Jennifer and thank you to the Hive Poetry Collective.
0: Once again, this is KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM.